History Lecture 119, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Uh, we are, have done a survey of the state's early trials and errors, lots of, lots of errors, uh, lots of problems, and trying to paint to see it, obviously, with an eye on religious conflict, tension, where's Yasula and the Asik Bish and the, uh, you know, the, bad, the bad, the smelly affair, and um, the other different components that just exacerbated already existing tensions. And if you think that the problem between a religious and secular people is new, then you don't know anything. But clearly, this has been one that's been festering for years. And whereas in the, when the Enlightenment broke out once upon a time in Europe back in the day, so the, um, there was this rebellion by people rejecting Torah, Kofrim. Now we're several generations into it. And the younger generations, especially of Ashkenazim, who've been so, their families have been off the derech for so many years, they really don't know. They're really, as the Achazanish famously teaches, Tinochinishba, who feel that they're just, you know, they're being persecuted by the religious and, and, uh, and that the religious are getting away. I mean, there's the story of Yassel that we told yesterday really illustrates uh, that there was some kind of conspiracy theory that they're gonna, that they're gonna, they're gonna uh, you know, be, be subject when today, for example, when <coughs> in different communities you hear this in Yerushalayim, there was a dynamic in there remains a dynamic in what's it called? Kiryat, not Kiryat Menachem, but Kiryat Yovel, that area which is more, has been historically more secular, and because it's a shortage of houses, increasingly many of these previously secular communities, uh, religious families are moving into them, and the locals protest. And they say, you know, they're going to come. They're going to come after our children. They're going to try to make care of our children. And what's the neighborhood coming to? And you hear such things, and it's ugly. But it, it, it does. It, it, it comes with background. There's deep bitterness on both sides of the divide. It also may explain, to some degree, the. Um, if you ever notice this about Israeli from Jews, are as a generalization and stereotype, and obviously the exceptions to such things, they're generally less Kiruv-oriented. They're not, the fact that you could have a tiny fringe that would um, spit on eight-year-old girls and burn garbage cans and protest and do terrible things that are absolutely a and not care is an outgrowth of this bitter struggle where the sides already, in a sense, they don't even care anymore. Uh, I mean, it happened to me once, I guess I look religious, and I was just in a parking lot somewhere, and somebody came over and spat by my feet. You Haredi, you. That's the, that's the potential level in a, of animosity. It doesn't always come to that. But you know, my thought, my first reaction was, why, what? You know, who? You don't even know me. What? Yeah, but that's they don't care. You, you're in a box. They've labeled you. Israel's a terribly polarized society. You're in this group. You're in that group. Whether you like it or not. And uh, yeah. What was the end result from, from the kidnapping? I, I, the kid was saved. Yeah, they, well, he was saved. Was everybody arrested? They, and then they yes, they arrested them. They tried them. They punished They punished The perpetrator, Ruth Ben Dubbing, was punished. For how long? But I don't know. Married. You can find out. She got married. Yeah, eventually she got out and lived a life. She, she got out for kidnapping? For like seven Yeah, seven I don't know. I, you look it up. I don't know exactly. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you want the movie version where at the end they tell you what happened to all the characters? Yeah. I, I can't tell you all that. I'm sure, that, I'm sure it's accessible, that kind of information. Uh, but I, I mean, the one piece I did tell you was Yossi today is secular. I mean, they won. They got that one. Where's Yasula? You know, he's not in the clutches of the religious. Um, totally changing gears and changing topics to some degree, but this is a piece of, the, of, of, our, of our story. Um, the Third Reich, the Third Reich had different uh, members, famous movies have been made about such things. They had the doctor, Mengele, and uh, the experiment, and so the, the, the person who was called the expert on Jewish matters on behalf of the Third Reich, Reich was one of the uh, architects of the Shoah, the final solution, by the name of Adolf Eichmann. His job was overseeing the concentration camps, not a small job. Uh, he was involved in the expo uh, he was involved he was in charge of the expropriation of Jewish property, as we said, calculated to inflation billions of dollars. Uh, he was in charge of the deportation of Jews to the ghettos and then finally to the to the final death camps. Uh, he would be central in the implementation of the final solution when it was begun from 1942. Uh, and we could say a lot more about Eichmann, but I don't think I have to elaborate. Bad guy. Uh, what happened to Eichmann after the war? Interesting. The U.S. Army arrested him. 
He had maintained papers that said that he was a certain Otto Ekman, so they didn't realize exactly who they had gotten hold of. He was a clever, clever uh, fellow. Uh, he was, one of the reasons why he was clever, and this had to do with something that Hannah Arendt would eventually say, he didn't look like the guy for the job. He looked like a technocrat. He talked like a technocrat. He, you didn't, you weren't impressed by any, he was not a charismatic figure. He was a push, paper pusher. So he could get away with it, he could hide from the authorities. He, he managed to avoid the Nuremberg trials. Stunning accomplishment. Uh, you know, and they didn't suspect him. He was Otto Ekman, um, and the Americans arrested him, and eventually he escaped. Uh, 1950, he eventually got to Argentina. His papers said that he was a, a German refugee by the name of Ricardo Clement, uh, and he got a job as a car mechanic, which he was—he was—he had multi talents, and he made a living as a car mechanic. Uh, Ricardo Clement. And um, his family eventually joined him a couple years later, 1952. Um, we now know, and hindsight's a wonderful thing when you're learning history, but at the time nobody knew this, the CIA of America realized who Ricardo Clement was and did nothing. They took no action. It was not their job, their, not their business. But they knew that? They knew that Adolf Eichmann was living in Argentina under the assumed name of Ricardo Clement. Okay. Uh, they knew that Auschwitz was 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 uh, was murdering tens of thousands of people every day. They could have bombed it, and they didn't. Uh, passivity, passivity, the passivism of the world in the face of horrors, in the face of uh, potential justice, is shocking. Um, it's questionable whether whether the Argentinians really knew Argentina has not been our friend. Uh, yeah, sure you can. Sure you can. I think it's done its job. If it gets hot in here, we'll reconsider. Aaron, Aaron, would you? Um, no, no, no. Don't do that. Better. Yeah, that's the better button to, uh, to the left. Two notches. That's perfect. That's the way. In the future, the, the thing is notorious. It breaks down a lot. I know this room well. The. Uh, okay. So uh, I was just going to say, Argentina is not. Has been not as hospitable uh, a home. We'll talk about the bombings, the JCC bombings in the in the in the early '90s, and the recent assassination of the fellow who was about. To, if you follow the news at all, uh, the fellow who was about to bring down the, the uh, current president. Uh, uh, fairly scandalous what goes on in Argentina. Anyway, Argentina was host to many former Nazis and let them let them be. Uh, and again, the CIA discovered him and took no action. And um, now cut, let's, let's go to the, name, the other main protagonist of the story, and that's Israel's Mossad. We met the Mossad yesterday in their, in their efforts to find Yosela. It took them many years. Mossad has is, is, is got a reputation in the world for being you know, the secret service and so on. They certainly fumbled a lot over Yosela. It's not like they're the most competent secret service in the world. Isn't there a, uh, I read a book about Mossad, about a, a, a specific, I don't know if you read it, but it's about a specific soldier, how he got like, captured. Uh, okay. I, listen, they, I, my only point is they tend to glorify the Mossad, and it has, it, it certainly has compliments to its name, but like any, any human enterprise, it's certainly got its flaws. Um, in any case, the, one of the, their own self-appointed tasks, um, uh, Israel saw itself and the Mossad as, 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 as a functionary of Israel, <coughs> was to, the capture of accused Nazi war criminals. What gave them? I mean, if we even before we tell the story, why they decided that, and what gave them the authority to go on the rampage to pursue the Nazi war criminals, has a lot to do with their self-definition of the state, which critics, um, not just religious critics, but many critics in the world, and not just anti-Semites either. People just think people who uh, Jews, not even left-wing or right-wing Jews, just people thinking about it think. What gave Israel, as a secular state, the gumption, the, the nerve to take on this role? They're going to be they're going to be the fighters for the Jews everywhere. Um, I would claim, I would assert that it's a part of an inherent gaiva and an arrogance in the state that we're the, we're better than most. And we we have a moral uh, high ground after the Holocaust, and we can do what we want to do. They're certainly unilateral. They they do what they want to do. Um, okay. Wait, do they have to follow the like? Do they? They listen to themselves. So they follow them. Okay. Well, you, you follow the Despite. recent you follow the recent chain of events with the uh, probable uh, new prime minister Bibi Netanyahu with his speech with the address to Congress. He uh, he follows his own rule book. It's it's, it's not a it's not a terribly endearing quality. Uh, certainly not to the enemies of the Jews, but it, it, 
it's, it, we're going to he hear the story, hear the facts on the ground. As again, no history is unbiased. I do my best. I'm sure I don't do a great job. Uh, I, I will try. I, although I have very reason to give, present a bias here, but you'll hear how they handled the capture of Adolf, uh, Adolf Eichmann again. If you hear the story presented by. Um, you know, supporter of the state, naturally they're presented, they're presented with all the bravado, movies have been made, look how clever the Mossad, the Mossad was, look how bungling those Argentinians were, uh, and, and so on, that's because they have a, they want to glorify the state. I, I'm going to try to present it with that. There is certainly reason to, on a basic level, to see that this fellow was brought to some sense of justice. One, it's hard not to be sympathetic. Adolf Eichmann is one of the villains of history, but um, the way it was done raises questions. And that's, that's my interest here, to try to get a, more of a global picture. Daniel? He did take attendance, and I will, if you need my backup, I'll tell him you were here for the majority, even though you were shockingly late, late, but I, you know. Okay. Um, Okay, so their self-appointed task, we are going to be the, you know, we're, we're on a, we, we represent justice because we know, cause, why? Because we said so. And we're going to hunt and find Nazi war criminals. They're not the only ones in the world. The, the Wiesenthal Center, Simon Wiesenthal, was also a self-appointed Nazi hunter. Um, now, a few more cast of characters. There was a German refugee in, um, in Argentina by the name of Lothar Hermann. Whose, uh, whose father was, Jew was Jewish, and therefore, as far as the Nazis were concerned, he too was Jewish. Um, Herman had a daughter by the name of Sylvia, who in 1959 started dating Klaus Eichmann, one of the sons of, 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 uh, of Eichmann. Um, now, they were living not subtle. I mean, again, they didn't, they, he went by Klaus Eichmann, but, but they, they, they went under this adopted name of Ricardo Clement, but they were not subtle at all. And at one, in one event where Klaus and Sylvia were, were over at the Herman's house, the boy started boasting of his father's exploits as a Nazi figure. And here's this, what he considers half-Jew. There's no such thing we know. They're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. But this, this fellow who had at least ties with the Jewish people, Herman, heard the boy boast. And eventually he got suspicious. And he said, oh, we're living around the corner from Adolf Eichmann. And my daughter's dating his son. And he, got, he, he contacted the authorities and eventually found his way to the Mossad. So it's not that the Mossad tracked down Eichmann. Akharish Baruch, who gave Eichmann up. I mean, it wasn't very subtle. Klaus Eichmann himself gave himself up to a Jew who eventually um, found, found the right address. So um, long story short, you can hear the whole long story. It's, very, it's available. Uh, the Mossad and the Shin Bet kept Eichmann under surveillance uh, for a, for, from 1959 until May of 1960. And the famous, scene, the famous scene is he's on his way home from work one day. They were sitting in a van. They knew exactly. He had a very yekish German meticulous routine at exactly which time he'd be passing. And indeed, uh, as on schedule, he was there. Uh, they um, drugged him made him put dark sunglasses on him, made him look like a drunk Israeli doctor, and uh, took him on an LL flight, got him past the, the Argentinian uh, security forces, and flew him to Israel. Okay, so they captured Eichmann. And the abduction caused a furor. On the one hand, people loved the story. Look at the clever Israelis. They found Eichmann where the world turned a blind eye. The CIA wouldn't do anything. The Israelis found Eichmann. Um, but many, many of the enemies of the Jews, many of the enemies of the Israelis were, were, were outraged. How dare they? What kind of chutzpah is that? An Israeli to go into another? Argentina has never forgiven the Israelis. How dare you invade our country and, and kidnap one of our citizens, was their perspective. Um, it led to a wave of anti-Semitic assaults. There were some tortures. There were bombing. There was a bombing back in Argentina. It was not an isolated event. It, 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 it would lead to recriminations for the Jewish people. Um, as is often the case, Israel is the self-proclaimed protector of Jews everywhere, but some of its actions actually accomplish the opposite, lead to negative reverberation for Jews everywhere. The um, Israeli government stance, they officially denied any involvement. Even though the Mossad was involved, how that works exactly was they, they had a hard time explaining. Um, in any case, 
UN, the UN passed Resolution 138, you can look it up in the books, Resolution 138 officially uh, condemns Israel's uh, activities in the capture of Eichmann. Uh, it took until the next year, April of 1961, for them to arrange a trial. And they tried Eichmann, uh, assuming the role now was the omnipotent purveyor of justice, not unlike, I don't know if you follow world events, but the Hague, who is this international court who claims to they, they try and, and, and convict war criminals. And um, often people ask, who are they and what gives them the authority? But people in the modern world, in the post-enlightenment world, people feel that they, they have, they, if you claim the moral high ground, um, vehemently enough, I guess you, you, you can take it for yourself. That's what the Israelis were doing. In any case, they tried him. Um, the trial was covered internationally. And it was significant. And if you're confused by my presentation, because you're hearing both positive and negative, uh, that's intentional. I'm trying, as always, to give the messy version of history where there's good and bad to be found in all of these events, in many of these events. Um, here, what I claim is positive is that, and, and what many people feel, and I mentioned this on the bus the other day, is many people feel that it was the Eichmann trials because of their um, sensationalist nature, because they, because they um, elicited testimony by victims of the Nazis, Nazi atrocities, and that it was covered by the international media. People could actually watch it on their televisions, this, newer, this new uh, technological contraption in, in their own living rooms, that it made the Holocaust a, um, a, an international phenomenon. For the first time, as I mentioned, the Holocaust, the Shoah, had been something that people, the world, hadn't really reckoned with. Um, you can see that, for example, in its depiction in the media. There was almost none, there was almost no mention anywhere. The only exception to the rule was that the, the publication of the Diary of Anne Frank, which was not a small event, in the 1950s by, by Otto Frank, the survivor, uh, the father who survived, and eventually was made into a, into a play and then later into a movie. Um, uh, Shelley Winters was not. Oh no, she won. She won. She won. She won. She won one of her two best supporting actress uh, awards for the Diary of Anne Frank. So that was one thing that people did, which was, I guess, a certain angle on the Holocaust, well, part of the story. But you know, really, a couple families hiding up in an attic is just one tiny slice of what went on, and that the um, essence of the atrocities, the the the, the um, uh, the extent of the horrors and, and the murders, uh, that was something that started to come out with the trial of Eichmann. And um, <clears throat> it changed things. People now have a consciousness that this went on. Um, Eichmann defended himself. In the, uh, his defense was as follows. as follows. He says, I was only following orders. We have a principle in, in Gemara that says, Ein shaliach uh, there's no, nobody, nobody can say I was just following orders. There's no shaliach for an Rivera. The person does an Rivera, he's responsible. You can't say I was following orders. But that was his line of defense. The evidence anyway showed the contrary, that he was the one giving the orders, not receiving them. But even if he was the one receiving them, we wouldn't say, we, according to uh, Jewish law, uh, not that the trials were conducted according to Jewish law. Uh, there was a it was a secular legal system. Um, neither neither argument would have held water. The um, whole trial was question questionable and, and remains so. Many people are are, are you know, criticize it. A Eichmann's crimes didn't take place on Israeli soil. So what gave them the authority to try him for for them? Um, it didn't take place when Israel even existed. It wasn't even a state. Uh, at the time, um, and probably on a legal level alone, the, his defense team didn't have access to all the evidence that was used against him, which is a big no-no in any legal system, uh, but didn't matter. They, found, they tried him, people testified, he was hanged on May 31st, 1962 in Ramla. Uh, he's the only person to date ever executed by an Israeli court. And the change is that from this point, the world slowly began to acknowledge the enormity of the crimes. Um, I'm going to tell an interesting parallel story, and then Eichmann is going to come up again in this story, too. Uh, the Admor of Klausenberg Sanz was a very unusual figure. His, his, his full name was Yekusiel Yehuda Halberstam. 
Agadol, a great, great figure of, in Hasidus, in the Hasidic world. His dates are 1905 to 1994. Uh, he was from Romania. Uh, Klausenberger Rebbe, Sans is another term that's used, uh, was tortured by the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto and then later in Auschwitz and then Dachau. Um, the Klausenberger Rebbe, as I'm going to refer to him, um, it went through, uh, and it's documented, he wrote about his experiences, and I've read them, and they're, uh, like many, harrowing, harrowing, difficult to get through, uh, what he endured personally, the kind of tortures that he, he was subjected to. Um, he lost his wife. He had 11 children. He lost all of them. He had approximately 1,000 uh, extended family members and Klausenberger Hasidim. He lost all of them. He was the sole survivor. And we've seen this before with certain personalities and their miraculous personalities um, where others would have crumbled. So his <coughs> response was as follows. He, came, he comes to the United States in 1947 and then he makes Aliyah in 1960 around the time of Eichmann's capture comes to Netanya, uh, and his response to the crushing uh, events of his early life was to rebuild. We saw the same with the Panovich Rebbe, we saw the same with the, the survivors of the Tel's Yeshiva, and now the Klosenberger Rebbe. Um, his projects uh, were, 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 um, were and remain uh, massive. He um, reestablished not just the Hasidus, but a large Hasidus, one of the larger Hasidiot in, in Israel today. Um, he builds up what's called Kiryat Sans. Who's been to Netanya before? You've been to the beach? Yeah, the Hospital. That's him. I'm a, it's the next in the list, right? The whole community there, the Sans community, the separate beach that's there in the north of Netanya, that's all his legacy. He built that, this, this, this survivor. Uh, he builds one of the most impressive hospitals in the world, the Laniato Medical Center, that is one of the few I mentioned. I mentioned uh, the Shari Tzedek, and we mentioned, we mentioned B'nai Barak. So Laniato Hospital in, in, from, from Netanya deserves to be mentioned too. Um, he says he went in, in establishing, he was famous for his Gemilus Chasadim, because he, he sets up Torah institutions, but he also sets up institutions to serve Klai Yisrael. He always quoted Chazal, he said, Torah, we know the Torah begins with Chesed, Hashem creates the world, it ends with Chesed, with Hashem burying Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, that should be our modus operandi as well. He establishes an institution in 1982 called the Mifal HaShas, which endures till today. It encourages students to master Shas with written tests on 20 to 30 blot every month. Um, my, my, my son sometimes participates in this, in, in the Mifala Shots. It's also, an, also a national uh, great accomplishment. Um, actually, one of his students is Rav Asher Weiss, who's a prominent, uh, significant Torah, Torah Talmud Chacham figure. If you hear him giving shir, he's from remote, but he, he reaches out and connects with many, many communities. One of, one of the up and coming Gedolim of Klai Yisrael, Rav Weiss. Um, so I mentioned the Klausenberger Rebbe now. Um, as sort of like the other side of the ticket, when, um, and, and specifically he figures in the story of Eichmann. When the Argentinian government screamed in the international community how outrageous of the Israelis to have captured him, and they demanded the return of Eichmann, and protested his, his, uh, his, his capture and then his, 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 um, his being put to death, so the Klausenberger Rebbe wrote to the president of Argentina, and this was published, and it's the whole letter is just heart wrenching, so poignant, so beautifully written. But he said he he describes in the letter, um, uh, Mr. President of Argentina, you have to understand um, that Mr. Eichmann was responsible for the murder of my wife, all eleven of my children. He had more children. He got remarried and had more children. Um, but he said uh, my whole life was destroyed. I had a Hasidic, all of my um, family and all of my students, all of their families were all murdered by Mr. Eichmann himself. Um, he said, I'm the sole survivor and I ask you, I ask you, Mr. President, if you would permit justice to be, uh, to, to be, seen, to be seen through. Um, again, as we said, he remarried. He had two more sons. He had five daughters from his new marriage. Go figure, Kaddish Baruch's ways. Um, his sons lead in the, till today in Netanya, and one of the sons is the Rebbe in Netanya. The other one is the Klausenberger Rebbe in Brooklyn. 
Um, his youngest daughter's wedding, the last of the of his seven new children, um, at, at his wedding, he he, he uh, when he spoke, he said he said this wedding is the best response that we the Jewish people can have to the uh, to the to the Nazis. What language did he write in to the to the president? Mrs. Stamet must have been translated into into Spanish. I don't know. I would imagine Yiddish, but I don't know. Whatever it was, was translated into Spanish. I'm on to the Mossad, so I'm going to mention another story from around this period, 1962. Uh, see if you can, anybody know this? We're now getting into some contemporary uh, events. 1962, what did the Mossad do? They sent an operative, a very famous, an icon in, in, in Israel. What's his name? Yeah, the name of his operative? Oh, it's right before the six day war. Ellie Cohen. That's the book I was talking about. Okay, fine. So, yeah, so they send Ellie Cohen um, to, to Syria to infiltrate the Syrian government. Israelis love this story. They tell it with a lot of pride, a lot of bravado. Um, and again, here too, I've got my criticisms of the way it's told, but certainly Cohen uh, was most nephew for Klal Yisrael. He was um, an unusual figure, extremely talented. He spoke. Um, not only spoke, he was from Egypt, so he spoke Arabic, but he actually spoke Syrian Arabic, which is a different, different uh, dialect, different accent, and he mastered the accent. He looked Syrian, um, and he exploited his position to provide key intelligence to Israel. Um, he, for example, very famously, I, I talk about this, Mr. Amal Pai tell the story when we're hiking in the Golan in a few weeks. Um, Golan was, under the Syrians, an empty area that the um, Syrians used um, as army bases, and they would often shoot at the Israelis down in the Kulda Valley below, or in the, in the, southern, in the southern area around, around Ein Gev, uh, on the eastern slopes of the, of the Knesset. And um, the army was based there, but it was parched, uh, inhospitable area, and, and um, Eli Cohen persuaded the generals he said, this is terrible to the soldiers. You have no shame for them. They have to be stationed out there in the heat like this. Plant eucalyptus trees. And so they planted eucalyptus trees everywhere that the soldiers were secretly stationed. You follow? You with me? Right? So when the Six-Day War came around, um, they were sitting ducks. And the Israelis only had to find the eucalyptus trees and they knew exactly where to, where to fire. The... Um, that was probably his most famed, um, but he, he, he accomplished stories, many, many stories about him. I'm not going to tell them all right now. Um, <coughs> King Assad of Syria once became sick, and he kept his, sick, his sickness a secret. Only the closest, uh, his own closest circle knew that he had sick, um, his confidence, and um, suddenly the Syrians were reading about King Assad's sickness in the Israeli press. How on earth did the Israelis discover that King Assad was sick? They realized they had a mole, or the king realized he had a mole. Somebody was here. And so he tested, he tested it. Um, they, um, one night, silenced all radio broadcasts at the king's command, uh, but they didn't tell anybody, and they found his secret transmitter. They caught Eli Cohen in the act. Um, he was publicly tried. Sentenced to death, and on May 1965, he was hanged. His wife watched her husband be hanged on, uh, being hanged on public television. Um, his remains have never been returned. They know that that's, that's something that Jews do for one another, that we make sure that we get, we, we get proper burial, which they have not done till today uh, for Eli Cohen. His wife has became a public figure after that. She should live and be well. Um, now, he became a, an Israeli legend. Cleverness. I think he was traditional. Sephardi in background, I think he was traditional. Uh, I don't know how he could be so religious undercover for that long period of time in Syria. Okay, so that's why I say traditional. Again, I don't know how Shabbos worked. As, as, you know, if you're a guy, what do you do? Where's you? Where are you going to have a Kriya Where are you going to have a minion ever? So I'm sure uh, some, something like that. Whatever he was, that's between him and the Gush Baruch exactly. But, um, but I. I would say like this, the, the stories are told with a, with a bravado that's naive, because the way you hear an Eli Cohen story, I mean, the tour guides love to tell these things when they guide the Golan Heights, and they, they go to the eucalyptus trees, is look how smart the Israelis are, and look what bumbling fools 
our, our enemies are, when actually, if you study the wars, the um, enemies are far from being bumbling enemies. I mean, Israel would not be in the dire straits that it's in, would not have had this mixed record with the various wars that it's fought, um, had, had, the, had the other side been so, been so naive, and it's really um, dangerous and deluded to perceive your enemy as, 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 as being so backwards. So the story should be told, uh, you know, maybe as a, as, a, as a cautionary tale. I mean, in the end, Cohen, Eli Cohen was captured and murdered by his by his um, by, by by those that he sought to subvert. But did get the last lap, though. I guess if that's what life is for. Wait, wait the telegraph thing, the very end of his life. Yeah. They, what was the Moses story? They even sent a paid telegraph. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the Israelis had a code that if you didn't type the code fast. It means that it means that you're captured. So he was able to save hundreds of Jews at the very end of his life. Because how did he save hundreds of Jews that so way? So he was he was saying that there's a fake attack. Yeah. Uh, he was saying <laughs> that there's a real attack coming oh. into this one place. Okay. And they were going to bomb, and they did bomb. I see. I see. Okay, so good. Kolokavod, and but again, again, I just think we celebrated too quickly. Okay. Um, 1960s, right? The, cent- the central date, as far as uh, history would uh, seems, seems to seems to borne out, is, is is what we call the Six Day War, June of 1967. Um, it is to try to assess it on some level. It's perceived correctly, I think, as a modern day miracle, series of miracles. Um, it's like used like all across the world, like a war that has no explanation. Right. It is the war that defy all the military experts. It's lasting significance is decidedly mixed, good, bad, and ugly, and everything else. Uh, the long-term significance has, you know, still being worked out. Um, the fact that Israel should have such an unprecedented, certainly unexpected victory uh, that lacked any rational explanation certainly uh, made it go down in history. Um, so let's try to let's do our best to try to piece out the complexity uh, to try to understand what has happened. We'll, we'll begin the story today. We, we'll continue um, tomorrow. 1964. I mean, as we've been saying, really, you don't understand the Six Day War in 1967 unless you understand all the wars that preceded it. But we've been doing that. We've been painting the big picture. The conflict had never abated. It never gone away. It simply waxes and wanes. 1964. The Arab League. Um, has several meetings, and they come up with a plan that they're going to subvert Israel's national water carrier. Back up, what's going on? In the 1950s, Israel had cleverly, with, with, with um, scientific savvy and know-how, they had made what was called the national water carrier, um, taking the, the, the base of the, the most of the, the major water source of Israel is the Kinneret, is the Sea of Galilee. It's not the only water source. There are local aquifers, many of which are polluted, um, but it's the primary water source, um, and it's in the north. So you can have a water source, but it's not so useful unless you can get divert the waters to all the various regions, especially down in the Negev where it's desperately needed. And they built what was called the National Water Carrier that starts on the north um, northwest of the Kinneret and actually goes through. You can you pass it. Um, let's say when you're coming down from Tveria or Spot, let's say, which is a common trip people take, you're taking a bus back from Spot, you can picture it, and you're going and you pass Somet Golani in the north, and then you're heading out, which is kind of like towards the west and going towards the six. Any of you with some geographic, little, little Israel geography can picture this. Um, you're going to come upon, on the right side, you'll see one of the branches of the national water carrier, the Eshkol branch, and it continues all the way down deep into the Negev. And provides much of much of uh, Israel's water needs. When it built this water national water carrier, it, that itself became symbolic and um, and 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 seen as, a, as as an icon of hatred for Israel's enemies, especially those who are deprived of water. You realize that the Middle East, the water water is is the central one of the central <coughs> military uh, geopolitical issues because there's not there's not a lot of it. And you cannot survive, your people can't survive without it. And Jordan especially is landlocked, so they're totally dependent on not only on water, but also on water technologies um, to survive. 
And, um, and Jordan, one of the reasons why Jordan is the most peaceful of Israel's neighbor is because um, and the people themselves hate Israel generally, but the government is totally dependent on Israel's technologies. And has silently always always recognized that and worked together with Israel. Um, the border with between Israel and Jordan has always been the longest, uh, most you know, uh, border relative to all the borders, and it's always been the quietest. The greatest incursions come from Egypt, from Syria, but Jordan's been quiet because the government doesn't really want to make waves, as it were. I don't know, water metaphors, right? They, 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 that's been. I mean, I'm I'm generalizing, but there's a lot to what I'm saying right now. Um, in any case, they hated, they looked at Israel's national water carrier with envy, seething with, with, uh, with anger that, that they could maximize their water. And um, the water uh, carrier is dependent on the Kinneret, which itself is dependent on three uh, um, rivers that feed into the Kinneret. I didn't know the names of them. Don. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Right, you remember this? I, I, I mentioned this before. So the Chabad Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, had a prediction there about the, the, their whole project of draining swamps there would never see, would never come out into fruition. He was right. And they said, of course he was right, because it's in the rivers themselves. Chatzbani, Banyas, and Dan, spell Chabad. Uh, they, 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 they make that connection. Okay, in any case, um, those three rivers... Um, which are the, themselves, the source of the rivers is the, are the underground um, aquifers from the um, snow mountain, as the Gemara calls it, the Hermon, the Sneer, the Hermon mountain, and, um, and, and, and beyond. And um, because north of there, Syria controls the source of these rivers, the, in 1964, they successfully diverted the water of the Chatzbani River, a significant river source, a water source, um, to the Litani River up in Lebanon. The Litani River flows inland out to the Mediterranean where the water just goes to waste. And it's interesting and ironic, they diverted precious gold, sweet water in the Middle East from the Chatzbani River through the Litani River out to the north. But they didn't use it for anything. They just threw it away into the Mediterranean. Better that our enemy should have no water. We don't care about our own subjects. That we should somehow take the water and use it for our own purposes. That they didn't give thought to. But they were happy to divert the waters to throw it away so the Israelis wouldn't have. Um, this is an act what they call, this is an act of war. This is a belligerent act. Um, terrorist attacks had never abated since the War of Independence in 1948. Uh, they increased as the, as the 1960s came along. There were occasional Israeli reprisals, but you remember the general attitude of the Israelis, Havlaga was restrained. Ooh, that's a good he feel. Lahavlig, we said he feel earlier today, right? Lahavlig is to, with, with, to uh, hold back. So the Israelis sometimes fight back, but generally not. Their border skirmishes, skirmishes, skirmishes especially with Syria. And increasingly, the Arab states who historically usually hated one another. Um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, though, and as Israel emerged as the real bad guy in the Arab eyes in the Middle East, the Arabs started to see past their own internal friction and start to have increasing dialogue. The Arab League started to meet more, and that was scary. And that folks back in Israel were watching and seeing when the Arabs unify, um, the Israelis have to look out. There hasn't been much of that, but that was starting to happen. Uh, increasing, uh, and it was not subtle. There was, was increasing belligerence, um, both in deed and also in speech. The president of Egypt was Nasser. Um, he actually was advised in, on, in, in 1967, um, he disregarded his own military intelligence. The, his generals were telling him that the Israelis were indeed not planning an attack. But he ignored them. He said, no, no, the Israelis are, gonna, are out for war. And he, he began massing his troops all along the Sinai Peninsula um, from May 16th, clearly intending for there to be war. So even though we're going to see eventually the Israelis started it, but not really. It was, the, it was really the first steps towards war. Um, were, I mean, the first step, again, was the diverting of the Chatzbani waters to Litani. But even amassing soldiers, that was, that was initiated by the Egyptians a few weeks prior to the outbreak of the war. Uh, 
Then, six days later, on May 22nd, Egypt closed what's called the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. That was probably the most decisive act that said this is war. Because you close the Straits of Tehran, they, you know, they, you can't, the boats can't come in, boats can't go out. Uh, Israel said that's, that was war. Uh, Nasser said, quote, our basic objective, objective now is the total destruction of Israel. The Arab people are ready to fight. And there was no, no subtlety about that. They were screaming in the streets. All the TV news showed the Arabs demonstrating and fully supportive of their governments as, as they took their steps towards war. And um, in, the, in, the, in the late days of May, in the early days of June 1967, rare instance of unity, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, and Jordan decided to cooperate in an attempt to destroy the state. And the promises to throw every last Israeli into the Mediterranean seem to be very much in reach. Um, if you're wondering why Lebanon is not significant here, Lebanon, we see in modern history, is mostly a very weak um, puppet state. Um, today dominated by Iran, at the time more by Syria. Uh, so it was not a significant power. It only enjoys the very northernmost border uh, with, with Israel. It was not one of the main players here. Certainly Lebanon covertly supported all the Arabs. Um, if you were to talk to people who were alive at the time before the war broke out, most people expected, most people in the world expected that this was the end of the state. Nice experiment, lasted about 19 years. What can you do? Who, who, who would have ever imagined that such a thing could actually be sustained? Uh, not a chance of survival. Um, there were practically- Why did people, not, like if the Arabs wanted to destroy Israel, why did they wait 19 years? Um, why did they do this before? Mostly because of their own internal friction. It took unity for them to finally come to this. Certainly, you're right, that the um, sentiment was there, but they lost the War of Independence, and they didn't regroup and reformulate. It took them 19 years to, to come around and figure out, okay, now it's time again. That this was coming was inevitable. As we said, there was never really a peace made. It was just uh, armistice disagreements. That's not, that's not the same thing as peace. Um, we have all the plans. We have, we have all this written up. There were concrete plans made uh, for an offensive operation, right? Um, Israel prepared for the Arab Israeli uh, invasion. Um, the civilians, everybody was involved. They dug fortifications. People in Yerushalayim were terrified. Uh, preparations were made. They actually have all these plans to evacuate all the children of Israel to Europe, should the need arise. Um, there was an influx of Jews coming from Chutzlaretz to Eretz Israel, coming from outside to volunteer to fight. Uh, people who cared, not many. Um, not, Israel didn't have any friends, even among Jews. Relative to the numbers of Jews in the world, it wasn't, wasn't a large number, but there were, there were as there are today, you know, friends, friends of, of, of Kalal Yisrael that came in. There were donations that streamed in, mostly from Jews, but even sympathetic non-Jews, evangelical Christians and, and the like. Um, again, as we said, many anticipated a catastrophe. People were talking about cities being bombed, an entire generation of soldiers being wiped out. That felt very much in reach. That was the mentality, and you have to, you can't appreciate what happened in the Six Day War unless you realize just how bleak things seemed right beforehand. Yes? I saw, a, uh, I saw like, the plans in uh, Shalavim, that was supposed to be a really big attack. Shalavim is right on the border, too. And uh, it, actually, the, the, six, um, the Shemitah year was, was the year before the Six Day War, I found. Uh -huh. Either that or the same year. And there was a field right outside of the thing. Yeah. And supposedly the the, the rough the town said we have to we have to work that land yeah. during this time. Yeah. So that the Jordanians don't take that land. Because if the Jordanians take that land, then they'll go and kill all the kids. And that was part of the plan. It said when we got the area of uh, thing. Okay. The plan was to take over Salvin, but that was one of the first things to do. Interesting. Not surprising, Shalabim sits in very strategically important area. 7.45 a.m. on Monday morning, June 5th, the war commences with a surprise, a preemptive attack from the Israelis. So they didn't start the war. They fought in a, in a defensive war. It's important to note that it was a defensive war, um, but they led the first strike, and it was preempted. 
and they bombed Israel's, excuse me, they bombed Egypt, Egypt's airfields early in the morning. Egypt, you should know, had by far the largest and most modern of all the air forces in, in, in the, in, of, of, the Arab, of these Arab nations, um, consisting of about 420 combat aircraft. The operation destroyed, not everything, some people say it's everything, it wasn't everything, but almost all of the Egyptian air force on the ground, a total of 338 aircraft. Out of 420, the, 100 pilots were killed. Um, there were actually very few Israeli losses. The whole operation took a matter of minutes. It was so uh, decisive, uh, many Israelis talk about they can't believe how effective they were. They, again, uh, what Ilan mentioned before, every step of the way seemed to have a Kaddish Baruch Hu's guiding hand, whether they recognized it as such uh, was another question. Um, in retrospect, in hindsight, we can say that the attacks seemed to, um, if not guarantee, it certainly uh, gave a strong sense that Israel would have air superiority through the rest of the war. Uh, it may have decided the war even before it began. Meaning, how could you account for the shortest war in arguably in human history? Um, probably because of this, because modern war is fought in the air. If you lack air supremacy, you can't do much on the ground. Uh, the Western press initially said, they reported as follows, the Israelis had greatly exaggerated the number of destroyed planes. Nobody could believe it. They, they rejected the initial, they figured the Israelis, was, it, was, it was psychological warfare, uh, but they, 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 they couldn't believe what it was. Um, I, I mentioned psychological warfare a lot, so um, somebody downstairs in the base medrash apparently listens to my classes. I never know who's out there listening to me, uh, but was listening and he pointed out that, um, I, that it, it would, it, to support the claim that war is predominantly psychological, uh, goes back to a story that we did tell here. If you remember back in the Gemara and Baba Metzia, the story, uh, the argument that killed Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish was over um, weapons of war. And it was Reish Lakish who asserts that it's not the coming out of the kiln, but when you, you, dip, you dip it in the water that gives the sword its sheen, its shine, that you use the shiny, the gleaming sword to intimidate your, uh, your enemy. That's what does it, and then he doesn't attack you anymore, and that's what made, that's what caused the victory. So again, it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the perception of victory, not the actual victory, that wins the war. So they asserted, now nah, the Israelis are trying to show off and claim that they, they, they downed more planes or they destroyed more planes than they did. Uh, they didn't believe it. Egypt's state radio reported that the Egyptians had decisively trounced the Israelis. They, they absolutely destroyed the Israelis. They claimed they destroyed 70 Israeli pilots. Uh, and planes. Um, you should know that when you do that, um, you completely you delude your own people. The Egyptians, uh, they felt a sense of inflated self-consciousness that was not deserved, and they turned around, they had no air force. Not no air force, but almost none. Um, I'm, going, I'm not going to talk about the war step by step. It could, it makes for dramatic, exciting discussion, as I've mentioned before here, I don't really care. I'm interested in the key points of history, not necessarily that always the drama of history. Um, effectively, the um, war against Egypt in the southern, on the southern front lasted four days until Thursday. June 5th, uh, until, uh, June 5th, Monday until June 8th, Thursday. By Thursday, there was fierce fighting. There were heavy losses. The Israelis also had heavy losses, for the record. It wasn't just that they went down and, you know, boing, 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 and, 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 and picked off all the, all the Egyptians. No, no, it was not, it was, it was messy, uh, and, and, and tragedies took place, but the Egyptians suffered heavier losses, by far, and um, they captured the Gaza Strip. The Israelis would ultimately capture the Gaza Strip, uh, the entire Sinai Peninsula, they reopened the Straits of Tehran to international shipping by Thursday evening, four days into the Six-Day War. Um, I think it's helpful, just in my own mind, to describe the war on the different fronts, because uh, in a sense you had several wars taking place simultaneously. That's the Egypt, e Egypt War. Meanwhile, Jordan. Jordan was reluctant to enter the war. They were part of the Arab League and they were in theory in, in there, but you know, that's one thing, it's another thing altogether to, you know, you then have to assert yourself and 
put your money where your mouth is and go and fight. And they were not necessarily interested in a full-scale war. They were afraid of the Israelis, frankly. Uh, there was some gun machine exchange intermittent. Uh, it began in Jerusalem on nine, at 9.30 in the morning, a couple hours after the Egyptian uh, planes uh, were destroyed on the same morning on Monday, June 5th. By 10 a.m., though, Jordan had no choice. And they started shelling Israel targets in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Netanya. I mean, if you picture, well, no, it's nothing. Picture the map. Jordan and Israel are literally overlapping all along the West Bank, Yehuda Mishomron borders. So Netanya, remember Netanya, half a cigarette away from uh, yeah, Tel Aviv. Uh, What's that? Tel Aviv is pretty far. Not, not no, really, no, nothing's no, far. It's all here. It's all. It's Jordan's in our midst. The shelling can go that far. It's closer than here, than here to Gaza. For sure. It's probably for sure. Miles in the world yeah. West Bank. Right. Not nothing. 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 Stare at a map again, and you'll see. Look at look at the look at the interact. Well, yeah, look at the Shom. You go to the Shomron. Look at the Shomron and see how close it is to Tel Aviv. Nothing. I mean, can you you take today? You take Route Five from Ariel uh, over over to, to Tel Aviv. It's I mean, it's a lot of traffic, but if there's no traffic, nothing. You're there. Um, so Jordan really did target. Right? Like, What's that? Oh, it'd be right here. <laughs> it'd be right here. And here's Israel. We're on the border, you realize, in Orsaman. Yeah, it comes through Dan Manley. This is barbed wire right now. <clears throat> yeah, so 10 o'clock already, Jordan's already shelling Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Netanya, and elsewhere. 12.30 in the day, Israel counterattacks. They attack Jordan's two air bases by surprise. They do have something that I would have wanted to do with you this year. It doesn't look like we're going to necessarily do a lot of these things. Maybe we will by the time Elon gets back. Uh, but um, if you actually go, oh no, we did do this. In Olpan, did we go and see yeah. the, the multimedia piece? Yeah. No, 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 we didn't. We just went into the thing. No, that's worthwhile. They, that's one thing. But you have to ask for it. They put on a new self, bit of self-promotion that's useless in the in the Ammunition Hill Museum. You have to pay for it, and it's a bunch of old timers taking their grandchildren through Ammunition Hill, um, basically um, promoting themselves. Um, but the old version, which you have to ask for, um, which is excellent, actually gives a, a multimedia depiction with, with um, topographical oh, maps. Yeah, it's really well done, and, and it really helps you understand on the ground where everything was and when things started. They trace the war step by step, and maybe gives you way too much detail, more than you probably need, but it's interesting, and it, it certainly helps you understand the, the, the geography of the war. Anyway, um, Israel destroyed Jordanian, Jordan's two air bases by surprise. Again, another, unil, another unil, uh, excuse me, a preemptive strike. They destroyed the majority of Jordan's aircraft. Again, air supremacy is key in modern warfare. So now they got Jordan's aircraft, and soon after, Israel destroyed an, an Iraqi Air Force base in western Iraq. Okay, so a similar, a similar uh, dynamic. The, um, from late afternoon on June 5th, the Israelis would launch an offensive to encircle Jerusalem. Again, it's very dramatically presented in, in Ammunition Hill. Um, it lasted into the following day. Uh, a key battle was indeed at Ammunition Hill, started at 2.30 in the middle of the night. Lots of mistakes. They way underestimated the number of, um, of troops that, on, the, on the Arab side. Um, many of the commanders were killed. I quoted, it's just worth quoting, um, one of the privates, uh, his, he saw his commander shot down, and without a choice, he became the commander and led his troops, he said, miraculously. He thought from, from trench to trench that he would not see uh, the next minute. And he describes, I'm quoting his name is Yaki Haimovich, and I mentioned that I think he was Jewish. Um, Yaki Haimovich said, they shot without a break. I was sure I would get hit as well, but miraculously I was able to advance. He said, and then he goes into great detail and he concludes, I'm not defined as a religious person I have no other explanation as to how I remained alive. I felt that someone was protecting me from above. As many soldiers who described the Six-Day War in all, of, all over the country felt that as well, uh, he was. By Wednesday, June 7th, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan ordered his troops not to enter the old city. They had effectively encircled all of Jerusalem, but the old city remained, as it were, a, a landmine 
right in the heart of things, and Dayan was not interested. And if you remember, this is similar to what happened in the war, the fighting of Tashach, in the War of Independence. There was a decision, a self, self-aware decision, not to go after the old city. Let the Arabs have it. It's history, it's tradition, it weighs on our shoulders. We'll be seen as being magnanimous. As Let the Arabs take the holy sites, the second Israeli said. Uh, and he said, we're not entering the old city. He explained it was for strategic reasons, but even some people sitting there as he was explaining it said, this doesn't make sense. There's no strategic reason in the world to keep the old city as Arab. You're gonna have a tick, you're gonna have a bomb, a time bomb in your midst if, you, if now you have Jerusalem reunited but you don't take the old city. And privately, they caught him off tape, but they, they caught him and, and, and we have this. Uh, he confided to Ben-Gurion that he was concerned over the prospect of capturing the holy sites. He didn't want to take the old city. Well, I guess, you know, Kaddish Baruch was in charge of the world and um, had other plans and forced his hand. And um, news came that the United Nations had declared a ceasefire and pressures mounted during the ceasefire. They said, quite the contrary, you have no choice, Mr. Dayan. You must take the old city. And indeed, he shrugged his shoulders. He did, and, 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 and they said, even without cabinet clearance, the army was, was, was poised and ready. They broke in through Lion's Gate. Paratroopers met little resistance. Um, there's very famous footage of the paratroopers storming up. You see, uh, you see Lucy Narkis and Yitzhak Rabin and other and Yigal Alon uh, all marching into the Lion's Gate just north of the Temple Mount and going in. Uh, for the record, that's not original footage. After they did this, after they conquered the old city, which took very little time, um, they realized they didn't have any film footage. Realizing again that war is entirely propaganda, they went back and refilmed it. And that's what you're watching when you see all of that. They, they restaged everything. I mean, it's not insincere because you know, all that happened. It's just what you're watching is not the original, uh, uh, original battle for the old city. Yeah. Which gate is that? Which gate is that? If you can, have, you, have you ever stood on Harazasim? Outrageous! You must go to Harazasim. Anyway, if you were to picture from the eastern flank, um, it's the gate just north of the Temple Mount. It's the biggest gate, right? Lion's Gate is the biggest gate. Sorry, no, 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 no. no, no. no Damascus Gate is larger. This gate's Jaffa. Jaffa Gate is larger. Lion's Gate is huge. Lion's Gate is really not really Lion's Gate either. It's it's from Bibers, the Mamluk, and it's actually um, it's it is it is a panther. But it would have been safer if it was dung if they went to the dung gate. Okay, but all of that was just later. They, 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 filmed, they filmed different propaganda, which they have to do. That's what modern warfare is, for the record. Okay. Does Shari Al-Badil go into the old city without having to go through a gate? Like, you know, like, like you just not go through um, Well, because they knocked down the wall. Yeah. Um, presently in the old city, that's correct. Right. The old city was otherwise circled by walls. Correct. Um, so... Uh, they storm it, and you have the famous footage, and the soldiers come to the coast cell, and we'll talk about all of this. The three soldiers in that picture crying, uh, Shlomo Goran on the, on the Temple Mount blowing the shofar. Yeah. When they build the third temple, is, are they going to use the wall like the hotel, or are they going to knock We'll talk about Baishlishi. We're going to talk about Yechezkel. It's different than anything that came before. Oh no, I don't. I don't doubt the sincerity of the soldiers. Come on, I mean, I'd be a mess if I was yeah, there. Yeah, that was the second time. time that they probably were there. No, no, I don't know. I don't see how that experience. I mean, you hear, you hear on every hear the recorded versions where they're, where they're standing by the coastal, some for the first time ever. The coastal, the That's very emotional. I mean, whatever you feel about the state and the army, all that, all, putting all this aside, Am Yisrael is coming back. I mean, we didn't get our advice then, but like that we could get so close, it, it, it's breathtaking. That's why your original line is not, like, should, you know, wouldn't that make it seem like important? So you'd say that Yom Yerushalayim should be important. Today I mentioned it's really, um, ironically, Yerushalayim is, 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 is the icon that's meant to unify all of Kalal Yisrael. Today, Yom Yerushalayim is a non-day, except if you're Dati Lumi. The uh, secular are annoyed by it because they don't really like Jerusalem. They'd be happy if the Arabs have it still, generally. <coughs> it's a generalization, but uh, I think it's mainly true. Um, the Haredi and, 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 and most of the Gedolim really see it as, what are we celebrating? We're not there yet. We, we need to be making tshuva still. It's true, we can go to the coastal now. But remember, the coastal is not the holiest place in the world. 
it's what's on top, and we'll hear about that. That's you're you're um, making me rush into that. We'll get to the um, some. We're, we're, I want to just finish for today. Um, the immediate fighting. The um, I'll finish in Yushalayim. Well, I'll finish with this. It, the troops continued to the south. Uh, they captured Beit Lechem, Gush Etzion, Hebron, much of Yehuda, without much resistance. In the north, they took um, Jenin, Shem, Shomron. They all had fallen. We're talking about what they call, the left wing calls the West Bank, the right wing, the traditional people call it Yehuda B'Shomron, Judea and Samaria. Israel advanced to Jericho in the east and into the Jordan Valley. Um, a lot, some of the some of the in wartime, they don't always follow orders. Some of them had advanced into the West Bank without orders to do so. And when Uzi Narkis, he, he was stunned. He was stunned by the success, and he said, "We didn't want the West Bank, but they've taken it, and we're not about to give it back either." So a lot of this was conducted. Again, some of us feel with Yad Hashem. All of it was Yad Hashem, but sometimes very in a very tangible way. Yuzinarkis um, described how stunned the Israelis were by how unexpected and and, and seemingly easy the success was. Uh, he, he, I'm going to quote him. He says, first, the Israeli government had no intention of capturing the West Bank. It was actually opposed to it. It was difficult." And, and, and then he said, it, it's difficult to believe the end result was something that no one had planned, he said, uh, neglecting to realize that one had planned. Um, we'll continue tomorrow.